engage in practices that could and will likely promote a leaner body composition or a healthier weight for you because the act of doing those things will improve the quality of each day of your life. That's Marcus Philly, athlete, coach, trainer, and the founder of Functional Bodybuilding. By eating more protein, by getting in more steps each day, by focusing on going to the gym to build muscle, you will feel better, you will be more productive. All of those things will come out of the practices of doing that. Looking good or looking different or changing your image will be a byproduct of that. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Marcus Philly to discuss the most common mistakes people make when it comes to nutrition and exercise, how to leverage health and fitness for peak professional performance, and why gradual changes and marginal improvements are the key to achieving long-term and sustainable results. The long-term success on these short-term reboots is low because it demands that you go all in, you go from zero to 100, and when your desire is high, you can do that for a period of time, and then eventually it becomes overwhelming. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. So I am honored to have you on. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, if they're not familiar with you, I definitely think they should give you a follow, certainly on Instagram. I know we were just talking about this before we started recording, but you put out incredible content. I want to get to some of that. But before we do, if we could take it back, if you could share some of the experiences that shaped your upbringing and perhaps your perspective on health and fitness. Yeah. Well, I would say that the two things probably that really stand out from childhood were, I think I just had some natural physical abilities that I was expressing and my parents saw it and they wanted to just give me a lot of opportunities to get into sports. So I tried all the sports, but really found a love for soccer and for golf. These were like my two, two sports, very different, right? There was this very physical sport in soccer and then a very disciplined, mental, go within yourself exploration with competitive golf. So they cultivated just different skills and traits in me, I think, both of those sports. But really, in about the high school years, my love for golf really accelerated because of me being an introverted person and an inward thinker and a thoughtful athlete. I could express that so much in golf. It's such a game of strategy. It's such a game of being able to like 
play between calming your emotions and your psyche while expressing some real physical prowess. Uh, people don't think that when they see golf. They're like, ah, oh, there's a bunch of out of shape guys out there. But that is changing dramatically. And, and the athleticism to swing a club and, and to do those things is tremendous. But on the flip side with soccer, I got really into the physical expression of the body. And I started to love the training of soccer deeply. And then I love the training of my body outside of soccer practice through sprinting, through calisthenics, through weight training, as it fed this part of me that was like, movement is the anchoring point of my life. So that was seeded early on. And movement being just this anchor to how everything else was going to function, feel, and optimize, whether it be as, as a student, uh, just general happiness. If I wasn't moving and if I wasn't engaged physically, I didn't have as good an outcome in other areas of my life. And a lot of kids feel that, or young athletes, student athletes, they're just like, oh, when I'm on my schedule, when I'm training, when I'm hitting practice, things go better. So that really was like my teenage years, eight years old through the end of high school. And then I got into college and I was fortunate to sort of take one of those sports and play them at a collegiate level. I played soccer at UC Berkeley. The experience of then taking this passion of movement and sport and then going up a notch in terms of like, now there's people talk about politics and sports, which is basically like, who's the coach going to play? What's the purpose of playing that athlete? We got to win games, but we also put some money towards this athlete. They were a top recruit. Started to introduce some things that made me look at the sport differently. And I was a standout youth athlete that got, I don't want to say bench, but like I just didn't get the starting spot. And I never got the starting spot for my entire collegiate career. And so I rode the bench for a long time. And that really sharpened my attention on what about this do I love? You know, because it wasn't the game. It wasn't the spotlight. It wasn't the winning championships. Although I felt like I was contributing to the team, it was more, I actually love the training for this thing. I don't want to give up the training. I can explore training in these other ways that are not 30 hours a week or 20 hours a week of dedicating to an organized sport that was somewhat politically driven. And so that started to shift my focus towards the, what we'll call the sport of training or fitness, basically. It just so happened that I was deeply interested in the health sciences. So I was a molecular cell biology major at Berkeley with a pre-med emphasis and predominantly took courses and coursework in cell development and physiology. So really starting to understand, okay, let me understand what's happening in my body on a cellular level and then combine that with expressing movement and how that changes the physiology and our psychology and our emotions. And I just got super interested in that and became an avid consumer of scientific literature on fitness, biology, and that intersection of the actual expression of movement and, and fitness and nutrition 
And when I finished college, it was like, okay, now I got to go find a way to do this for the rest of my life. I know some people know you from your CrossFit career. What got you into CrossFit? Because it's always interesting what gets somebody into CrossFit, whether it's something yep. that they heard about. And we had Matt Frazier on the podcast. He kind of had an interesting route like yeah. kind of on his way to CrossFit. It was something that he'd never even really knew anything about before. But once he started doing it, he got obsessed with it. Sure. And I know your journey is particularly interesting because I know you especially appeal to a lot of people today that have spent years doing CrossFit, but were looking for something different afterwards. True. Yeah. Yeah. Based upon the story I just told, you could imagine like, I'm a 20-year-old, 21-year-old wrapping up college, and I'm just like thirsty for anything fitness-related. And it just so happened that was in 2006. So 2006, 2007, 2008 was a very early time in CrossFit. It was on the web in the early 2000s, but it didn't really start to get mainstream until I would say 2009, 2010. And 2008 was when the first... CrossFit gyms were starting to really pop up around the world or mostly around the country and predominantly in California because this is where things started in Santa Cruz. So I was sort of consuming anything fitness related and friend who I trained with on a regular basis in, in another group fitness class. She said, I'm taking this class over here. You should come try out this CrossFit class. So I just jumped at the opportunity and it just so happens and fate led me into this group class that was taught by a very influential person that came out of the CrossFit world, Kelly Starrett, who he and his wife built this incredible company that was formerly called Mobility Wad, but he's really just been an instrumental figure in reshaping physical therapy thoughts and practices and mobility practices. He was my first coach and I took his class and I was deeply inspired by him, but also the workout itself. We did deadlifts and sprints, and I don't have the story of like, I went and did my first workout and got so debilitatingly crushed that I was like, I thought I was unfit. I went and I did pretty good, and I was like, but this is super fun, and it combines a lot of the things that I love. So I just started to consume as much as I possibly could, but my first CrossFit class happened. I dedicated about three months to really diving into it. Then I matriculated into medical school and I actually started my medical school coursework in central Ohio. And it was sort of like, well, CrossFit's going to have to sort of take a back seat right now because there wasn't a CrossFit gym. There wasn't a place for me to really go practice it. I was dabbling in it at the school gym, but it was not the same. I kind of think back on that as like, I got into it, but then I had to press pause for more or less a year on CrossFit until I ended up leaving medical school, taking a leave of absence, and in which case I kind of rekindled my fire for CrossFit. If you could elaborate on that, because I have a, a similar experience. There was a time in past life, I was pre-med, took the MCAT, got into med school. I decided ultimately it was not for me and, and the rest is history. At the time, it was probably one of the most controversial decisions amongst the people in my life. Today, looking back in hindsight, it was probably the best decision, but what influenced you to essentially not go down the full path of med school? Yeah, I imagine there's probably a lot of similarities because I could summarize my experience just like that. I came from a family of doctors and people in healthcare. And so because of my interests, because of my academic interests, it just was like, oh, this seems like a good fit. And I wanted to figure out how to be involved in healthcare in some way. And so that felt like, okay, this could be a place to go, but I didn't want to practice. There was no specialty. I was like, oh, I can't wait to go be a surgeon. Or I can't wait to be a radiologist. It was, I want to go learn the medical system and then 
iterate on that with movement, nutrition, training. But I think that at the time, being in medical school, Peter Atia in his book outlines this pretty well. He says like medicine 2.0 was in its heyday back at that point. And it still is to a certain degree, but it's like the idea that we're going to learn how to assess when people are broken and then we're going to prescribe a fix. And that fix is a pharmaceutical or it's an intervention with surgery. It's some intervention that's going to fix that. I'm putting quotes around that because it's like, we're going to just mitigate symptoms. We're not going to go to the root cause of why you are sick in the first place. And I knew that going in, I knew that that was a fundamental problem, but I also then was in the system and I was like, whoa, this is all we're learning. This is all we're getting taught. And to learn that system, Medicine 2.0, is a massive, massive undertaking. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to dedicate eight years of my life because I'm going to excel and I'm not going to allow myself to not be the best but I have to dedicate to learning a system that I fundamentally think is broken in a way. And we don't have to go down the like, why I see value in Medicine 2.0, because there's plenty of value in it. However, that wasn't how I wanted to be as a professional. It wasn't what I was passionate about. So it was controversial amongst my inner circle, the people that were closest to me at the time. It felt like it was the biggest decision I was making. It was fear-driven. I was scared. I didn't know where I was going to go after that. Life was crumbling in front of me, the darkest moments of my life. But in hindsight, yes, it was the best decision for me because I then took all of my skills and passion and channeled it in the health and fitness world to ultimately help people in a different way understand what they can take control of now, today, to not only prevent chronic illness, but in some cases, reverse chronic illness and or just live more fulfilled lives. And I think it's so relevant today and it continues to be so relevant and more and more relevant where people are learning like, I want to not only just live longer, but I want to live more fully. And so what if I'm taking these pills to sort of correct the dysfunction that's showing up on my labs? It's not making me feel like I'm kicking ass in life. So it ended up being such a great move for me, but I didn't pivot away from healthcare. I just found a different avenue that I think ultimately suited me best. I'm curious kind of what happens next, because I know you return to CrossFit, you get pretty competitive with it, right? You compete in the CrossFit games. And then from what I've read, I think you stated that you were burned out. You're about to become a first time dad. And I think this was right around the time functional bodybuilding was born. And I'd love if you kind of could share what led to that. And then for people listening who don't know what that is, how would you define functional bodybuilding? Yeah. Well, so between medical school and the creation of functional bodybuilding, there's this eight year period of time in my life where I dove heavily into CrossFit as a coach, as a business owner, and as an athlete. So started as a coach, got into business ownership, opening up a CrossFit gym, and then simultaneously developed myself as an athlete in the sport that is called CrossFit. All of that was very fruitful on many, many levels. I learned a lot as a coach because CrossFit at the time, through those years, was the biggest lead generating funnel for new 
fitness, strength, and conditioning clients. More people were coming to the gym to practice weight training and strength and conditioning through the CrossFit brand than any other method had been really to date. And so I was like, this is where I'm going to get access to the most people to develop as a coach, develop my own skills as a professional. And because I was having success as an athlete, this is fully a personal selfish pursuit. Like soccer in college just didn't scratch my competitive itch because I was benched the whole time. So I was like, I got more to give. I want to just go and really feel what that's like. A captive audience of CrossFitters around the world poured a lot of energy and a lot of love towards the athletes of the sport. I was doing well. People had eyes on the sport. And I was somewhat of a unique athlete who was also a coach and a thoughtful athlete who had a thoughtful approach to training. And that helped me to build a base audience, the base customer that I now have expanded upon with my own business. And so in 2016, I had sort of done this like seven-year run of being an athlete. And that's a long career in a high-intensity, high-demand sport. And it's also a long time in a high-demand, physically demanding sport that doesn't pay. You've had Matt Fraser on the podcast. He is by far the exception to the rule where he won so many times and he was so successful that his earnings from endorsements and prize money was substantial. But the vast majority of us that were competing at the same time in the same era were paying to play. We were not being paid to play. And so that didn't stop me. I was smart enough to know like there's a certain timeline and a lifespan to this. I can't do this forever. It's taking up physical and mental and emotional resources. It's not providing a lot of financial resources. And it's keeping me from dedicating to building a business or expanding my career. And now in 2017, I'm just recently married. I have a baby on the way, wanting to start a family. Okay, it's time, logically, to hang up the boots, so to speak, as an athlete. Once I shifted gears and it was like, okay, I got to do this a different way. I'm not going to be competing in a sport. I was not going to be the athlete that retired, got out of shape, and lost their way. I was like, no, I'm still a lifelong athlete, but I want to do this in a way that I can do it for the next 40 years. And the way that I was competing in the sport and training for competition, also the way that the CrossFit brand and the CrossFit boxes of that time were promoting general population fitness didn't align in my view of longevity, being able to do fitness in this way for a long time. So that's when I was like, these are my thoughts and concepts on training. I'm going to keep showing them to people through social media, which was a really fun platform for me at the time to express ideas, show my own training, show my transformation from competing to win to now I'm competing to be able to do all the stuff that I love, but do it for a long time. And this was how I started to introduce other methodologies into my CrossFit practice. And essentially it was CrossFit with bodybuilding or CrossFit with other training principles that up until that point, people were not meshing together. The CrossFit box was sort of a place where people would join up 
and they were deeply committed to CrossFit. And anything that wasn't CrossFit, it was like, no, 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 no. You don't do bodybuilding in here. We don't do bicep curls. We don't do these things. And I was like, well, they all can coexist. I want them to coexist. I'm going to try and make them coexist. And as soon as that message was being spoken through social media, it just really struck me like, holy smokes, there's so many people out here that resonate with that. There's a lot of closet bicep curl fanatics that are in the CrossFit box that are going to the back of the gym after hours to do their curls because they want to do it, but they're being kind of shunned from the community in that way. So functional bodybuilding sort of got its roots in that story, but then it was like, wow, people really like what I'm saying and there's something here and I'm going to keep providing opportunities for people to learn, one, that it's okay to mix all these things together. There could be some real value and benefit for your long-term health and avoiding the burnout and the injury and the over-intensification of training through CrossFit in this way. And that, in a nutshell, was like, okay, functional bodybuilding is we're going to keep doing CrossFit, but we're going to introduce other principles that allow us to put a little bit more emphasis on physique, want to look good, we want to keep moving well, but we want to do it for a long time and not hit that three to five year burnout where everyone says, yeah, I'm done with my CrossFit membership. I'm going to go do something else. I was going to say, even on the flip side of that, then there's the bodybuilders. And I think what a lot of people, when they think about the gym and the exercise they're doing in there, it's a lot of like bodybuilding style exercises and static lifts. I think the appeal for them of functional bodybuilding is that bodybuilding alone is great if they're just focusing on, let's say, hypertrophy and, and just developing the muscles, but it's not very functional. So this is kind of the beautiful marriage between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. And bodybuilding's having its resurgence right now all over. And thanks to social media and thanks to a lot of influential people on that platform who have shown bodybuilding in a different light. And so that to me is fantastic because I was a bodybuilder who couldn't get anybody to come to the gym and do what I was doing. But then CrossFit got a lot of people to come to the gym and do what I was doing. So now we have a lot of people who are, hey, I want to do bodybuilding and hey, I want to do functional training. Hey, I want to bodybuild, but I don't want to be the stereotypical person who's muscle bound and doesn't have a lot of cardiovascular fitness to go with it. And I see people doing these movements, expressions of their body in the gym that are dynamic. And it's more than just like one dimensional flexion of joints. It's like, oh, that looks really cool. I want to be able to do that. I think people truly want to express themselves physically in a elegant, complex way. They want to be dancers. They want to be capoeira. They want to do all this and they want to have muscle. Like, how do I get all of it? At the risk of, well, we're trying to do too many things. I think it's really hit that desire point for a lot of people who are like, I want to look good and I also want to move really well at the same time. And Marcus, I know you're a plethora of knowledge. Before we dive into probably a deeper dive of strength training and the nutrition and just all the different lessons that you've learned for the people that are listening. So I know there's some that they're interested because they want to look good, but I think for perhaps a larger majority, how would you connect the dots between the impact of health and fitness and ultimately the achievement of business goals? Because I know there's a lot of people listening that are corporate athletes, or if they see it as a way to help them be more effective in their leadership and ultimately be more in a peak state day to day. How do you connect the dots between what they're doing in the gym and then ultimately what they're doing at the office? Great question. 
it's something that I've had to bring my attention back to a lot more lately because I realize that it's not just like intuitive ingrained in everybody's mind that when you move, when you have aerobic fitness and when you have muscle mass and when you have strength, you have a greater capacity to do anything in life. It's a hard one for people to connect with, but it's like, if you have more muscle, you will be a better entrepreneur. What? Like, how does muscle have anything to do with that? Well, we could start with just having muscle mass raises your metabolism, which allows you to sustain a better energy balance of the food that you eat, the foods that you love, and then utilizing those nutrients in your body to create this flux of, I take things in, I expend energy, and that flux of energy in and out is life force. Think of it like you got a, a pipe that is taking water from point A to point B. That pipe is pristine, it's clean. There's water coming in, it's flowing out. That's how you want things to flow in your body and your mind as an entrepreneur. If you have muscle and if you have aerobic fitness, you've got a clean, pristine pipe where energy comes in, energy goes out, water comes in, water comes out. If you're unfit, let's say you have low muscle tone. Let's say you have relatively high body fat. Your body composition is relatively high. Let's say you have low aerobic fitness, so a low VO2 max. You can't express a lot of cardiovascular fitness. Now you've got this pipe. It's corrosive. It's The inside is got sludge in it. This 10-foot diameter pipe is now down to one foot in diameter. You can try and force a lot of water through it, but it's slow. And that's what's going to happen in your thoughts, in your mental focus, in your physical energy. You're going to hit the afternoon slump where your productivity and your ability to think clearly is going to be shit. And so what you're accomplishing in the same hours that I have to accomplish business, I'm able to get more done because I put in the time to raise my fitness level, increase muscle mass, increase cardiovascular fitness, and now I can flow in such a more efficient, effective way. And that's just scratching the surface, but that is the big picture of like, if you have great levels of fitness, we can create a couple metrics, but I think the two that are most valuable is how much muscle do you have on your body and how much can you turn over energy through cardiorespiratory fitness. If you elevate those things, the other things that you're trying to produce in life will also elevate at the same time. I agree 100%. I think ultimately our outcomes are the byproducts of our decisions. And, and if being in good shape physically and mentally allows us to have mental clarity and energy, I can't think of anything else that could have a greater impact on our overall like outcomes and performance. So for people that are listening to this, and we all know what the gym looks like on January 1st, it seems like a very popular you know resolution that people want to either get in shape or this is their year. I know at this point, we're probably halfway through the year, but for people that have this desire to be healthier, what advice would you have to them for ways that they could be more consistent and perhaps stick to their goals? Because it seems like for a lot of people, it's not so much a lack of desire. It just seems like either the habits aren't there or the mindset's not there. What are your thoughts on that? What comes to mind for me is that when somebody wants to make change or they are inspired, they have the desire to get in better shape, there's sort of been this flawed but pervasive message, which is, let's get it done quickly, that has been out there. I kind of liken it to the medicine 2.0 mentality of like, 
got him out of shape. So what's the thing that's going to fast track me back into shape? Oh, like, let me do the 30 day, the whole 30 or the 75 hard challenge or, you know, whatever. That's going to catapult me back into shape. Right. And unfortunately, not that those things can't work in the short term. People who do those, they can have tremendous transformations. Those transformations then get pumped back into the marketing flywheel. And people see that two of the hundred people that signed up for 75 hard had a tremendous experience. They had this huge transformation. It happened in 75 days. I want that. Let me get into that. And the long-term success on these short-term reboots is low. It's quite low because it demands that you go all in. You go from zero to a hundred like that. And when your desire is high, you can do that for a period of time. And then eventually it becomes overwhelming. So I think we're entering a phase and a stage in fitness delivery, fitness messaging, fitness marketing, where people are kind of waking up to like, geez, like it's been two decades where there's been a lot of let's get this done quickly. And people are just on the merry-go-round of let's get it done quickly. And I would even argue that CrossFit kind of played into that quite a bit because it's like, here's a super intense workout, crush you in three to four minutes. You could do it fast and you're done. And I'll mention Peter Tia's book. It's like, he is kind of taking this other stance where it's like, you got to start to dedicate 60 to 90 minutes to your physical body a day. Be prepared to do that forever. That's what's going to lead to optimal outcomes. And there has to be a component of strength. There has to be a component of cardiorespiratory endurance. And there has to be a component of nutritional practice and adherence, all of which should be at a level that is just marginally above what you're doing now if you want to improve. Don't go zero to 100, but go zero to 50 and let's cruise at 50 for a year. And then after a year of being consistent, maybe take it up to 60 if you so desire, if you need it. That's the non-sexy drum that we're beating on, which is like, let's do the same things over and over again. Let's make it consistent rather than go and do like the super hard, detailed, focused, restrictive diet. Let's just make these changes. And that's the message that we want to promote. What people need in order to make that happen varies, but I'll leave it at that for now. It's interesting because it's the same things that apply really to business in that there's really no magic bullet. It's getting the foundational items right, executing on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis for a very long span of time. And then you start to see better and better results, but it's just in the consistent execution. I'm curious as to where you would place, because people will hear about different exercises and different types of gyms they can join, different training protocols. And there's the saying that you can't out-train a bad diet. What the interplay between Strength training, cardiovascular training, nutrition, sleep. How would you weight those? It kind of depends on the person's goals, but let's sort of go with the most common avatar. It's like, hey, I want to lose some weight. I want to get more fit. There's usually a weight loss or a weight component going on here. Yeah, there's plenty of people that are like, I need to build muscle. But a lot of people are struggling to manage their body weight at a healthy level. And the error that they're making more consistently is, their body fat's going up a little bit over time, and then they try and rein it back in. It goes up, and they want to rein it back in. So in that instance, the mistake people make is that they're like, okay, I'm going to go and train super hard. I'm going to go ramp up my fitness. And they know that diet's important. 
But when you ramp up your fitness a lot and you start to move and you start to do a ton of stuff, then we have deeply ingrained genetic ancestral primal urges and systems in our body that will say, okay, we just did a lot. We got to go eat a lot kind of thing. It ends up being like people want to focus on the movement. They want to focus on the training. But in reality, it's let's start to do some movement, but let's put more energy towards creating great fundamental nutrition practices. And we'll weight that a little bit more heavy because if you have a good nutrition protocol in place, or if you have a good approach to eating that is based in habit, it's based in some science, it's based in some basic principles, then you can get away without doing the crazy hard fitness program. People would be amazed. They're like, wow, I only need to lift weights three or four times a week and walk 10,000 steps a day, and I can have the body that I've always wanted, and I can feel great. And this thing over here, the nutrition thing, I just have to keep at an even keel most of the time. So that makes me say, okay, let's weight nutritional consumption more heavily with training principles that are supportive of that. And they don't make the dieting harder by virtue of you're just going and expending tons and tons of energy, burning calories, doing endless cardio, trying to do double sessions. You're hitting five hit classes a week at your gym thinking you're going to just melt this fat off your body when that is making it harder for you to adhere to the dietary practices that are actually going to give you the body that you want. I'd love it if you could even just elaborate on what some of the most common mistakes you feel people make when it comes to nutrition. To my knowledge, there's really only one way to lose weight, burn fat, and it's through a caloric deficit. But I'd love if you kind of speak to just some of the misconceptions people might have specifically as, as it applies to nutrition. Yeah, well, a caloric deficit can happen in a, a lot of different ways, right? That's just the difference between what you burn in a day and what you consume. How much of a delta do you need in order to like change your body? Well, this comes down to like, well, how fast do you want to see your body change? And people end up thinking like, I need to see dramatic changes to my body. So I'm going to go into a big calorie deficit. So that tends to be the first place people make a mistake is they try and really exaggerate this calorie deficit by doing all kinds of things, right? Cutting out meals, fasting, removing entire food groups from their diet, and really just overcompensating. Like, this is what I normally eat. I'm just going to cut that into like one third. I'm going to have a small breakfast. I'm going to have a very light lunch. I'm going to have like a little bit of a shake in the afternoon. And then like, that's how they're going to navigate this thing. Again, our bodies and our brains and our hormones they're built on an operating system that is not well-suited for modern-day food availability. So 100,000 years ago, when you were in a calorie deficit, you had to go and hunt for some food or you had to go and forage for some food. Like, you had to get out there and go get stuff. And we have these systems in our body that elevate the urge to do that because it was like if you're starving and... You need to go hunt something. You need an internal drive that's powerful to get you off the stone to go and hunt the thing. Now, the moment you go into a deep calorie deficit, these signals start to turn on in your brain. They start to turn on in your body. And they're as powerful as any drug out there. The hunger signals that we have and the hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years of evolution that are driving that 
they're more powerful than your will. Because now the food that you seek is not an all-day hunt. It is literally picking up your phone and ordering Uber Eats or grabbing something out of the cabinet or whatever is out there for you to consume. And there's no shortage of calories that are available to people. I'd love to know this statistic, but it's like within 100 feet of anybody, almost at any time, there's probably 10,000 calories of consumables, right? In any form. And if you're hungry, you will seek that out. And if you're really hungry, if you're in a deep caloric deficit, you're going for that stuff. So that system doesn't work. You can't starve yourself into the body that you want because there's too much evolutionary biology at play here and there's far too much available nutrients within your proximity for it to happen, at least in the Western modern world. So that is kind of the first problem. Does that mean that caloric deficits are not necessary to change your body? They still are. Like you still need to like eat a little less than you move. But the idea is let's lower that margin of like how much of a deficit you need to be in. And let's leverage the movement and the training that we do to help make that process or that difference more substantial and effective. And the central tenet to that is lift weights and build your muscle. I've talked about it a number of times now, but muscle is the place that calories go to die. I like to think of that. It's like, I got more muscle than you. And actually you've got substantial amount of muscle. I can see your muscle tone. I can just see the definition in your arms. Like I'm not actually comparing the two of us because you actually look like you're bigger than me. But either way, if you have a lot of muscle, when you go and somebody's like, oh man, you seem like you can eat anything you want. It's like, I can't eat anything I want, but I can eat a lot more than you because I've got a place for those calories to go to get burned, right? I'm not going to need to go run four hours on the treadmill because I had a donut. I have this metabolic sink, which is my muscle mass. And so let's get people into a smaller caloric deficit, and then let's get them to train the thing that's going to burn calories for their life, rather than let's get them to go jump on a treadmill, burn some calories, and then after that treadmill session's over, they don't get any additional benefit to that. So this is where we can help people to start to like, oh, let me focus on what matters, which is let me build more muscle if I want to lose weight. And then let me, rather than try and do something super dramatic by cutting out lots of foods and lots of calories, let me just drop that a smaller margin. It's interesting you mentioned this because I, I recall hearing about this study where they were you know, talking about disparities in people's metabolisms. And it was like this massive study that you, you might be familiar with it, but people have often wondered like, well, does this person, are they born genetically with a faster metabolism? And then someone would say, well, I have a slower metabolism and how it happens. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the study, which was done on thousands and thousands of people, it followed them through all years of life from like sure. you know, babies all the way through like adulthood and you know 70 plus years old. Essentially, the takeaway was, you might know the one that I'm referencing, is that it really came down to the fact that we're all born with the same operating system. And ultimately, what seems to be driving our metabolisms is our amount of lean muscle mass. And typically, people that have more lean muscle mass tend to have faster metabolisms. And, and then the opposite is true as well. Yes. Um, is that the case? I mean, I, I'm briefly paraphrasing this. 
Yeah, you, you actually hit something important about that. And, and then I'll add a couple more th- thoughts. I think I know the study you're referencing, and it looks at like all people at different age ranges. And what you look at is like, hey, you take a 10,000 34-year-olds, male or female, like you can separate them in the study. We have this person's metabolism is 1,100 calories a day, and this person is 35 or 4,500 a day. What creates that massive disparity? And what's actually at play is that muscle mass does contribute a lot to what you burn at a base level, what you burn if you sit on the couch all day. But what's really changing those people's metabolism is their actual physical activity, their movement. And I'm not talking about structured exercise. It's not like, oh yeah, well, that person exercises. They're an elite cyclist, so they exercise like crazy. It's they get up, they walk, they put a lot of steps in during the day, they fidget, they're moving, they stand up, they're not sitting down. Like You can vastly change your metabolism by moving, not in an organized way, but just in a daily activity type of way. And you know that person in your life who's like, man, that person doesn't seem like they ever sit down. They're just constantly always doing stuff. They're active, they're moving around. Those are the people at the high end of the metabolism spectrum. I wouldn't say that's like a genetic trait to them. Like they actually have to get up and move. And what makes them want to move is they eat enough energy to get them moving, right? The other takeaway from that study is that people who have low metabolisms can effectively lose body fat and people with high metabolisms can effectively lose body fat. Conversely, people with high metabolisms can also gain body fat if they overeat. And people with low metabolisms can also gain body fat when they overeat. So having a high or low metabolism is not the thing that is going to like either disallow fat loss or allow fat loss. However, the person who's burning more energy in a day, have a higher metabolism, they get to eat more food, which is a bit more satisfying and mentally they are capable of staying in this healthy body weight balance for longer periods of time. And on the notion of foods, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. What types of foods should we be eating and then anything to avoid? And I know there's the people that will say, well, it's okay to have everything in moderation. But then there's certain things, like I know we referenced Dr. Peter Atia's book, when you talk about sugar and alcohol, where satisfying, but there's really no benefit to these things. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't like to take a hard line on any like foods that you should or shouldn't have because- it's a very sensitive subject for people and food and beverage cross so many different parts of life from social to emotional to psychological to cultural to physical health. That's where the line that anything can fit into a balanced diet for you. There are foods that don't lend themselves very well to the balance that people are chasing. And and most of the balance people are chasing is really, unfortunately, a, it's as simple as like it's the calories in, calories out equation that we're trying to first optimize for, right? We're trying to get people to stop over-consuming energy because the overconsumption of energy, whether it's from clean sources or junk sources, it still leads to all of the same problems. That water pipe that I talked about is getting constricted and sludgy. That's overconsumption of energy. So when people say, hey, you should eat clean foods or you should eat whole foods or you should eat these foods or this is better than that, it's really just looking at, well, these foods have less calories per gram or per like volume than these foods. 
And so it makes it easier for people, if they stick to it, to sort of stay in the energy balance. But if someone tells me like, hey, all you get to eat is vegetables and lean protein for the rest of your life, that also doesn't feel sustainable. And that feels kind of like, okay, at some point, I'm just going to say F it and I'm going to go back to buying my meals at the convenience store on the corner because I just crave some entertainment, some pleasure, something different from my experience with food. So that's why it's like, okay, I don't want to demonize any one thing. But if I had to say like, hey, this is what you need to be focused on eating, then for me, it's a pretty clear win for lean proteins at every single meal is a cheat code to better body weight management. And what people consider a good amount of lean protein is often far below what they should be getting. If I could give the listener one bit of advice is go learn what 30 to 50 grams of protein looks like on a plate and try and get the leanest source that you can only because there's less calories in it. Not because I think fat is bad. I'm talking ribeye versus chicken breast, okay? Maybe there's something in between, a leaner steak or whatever. But just figure out what 30 to 50 grams of protein from a lean source looks like and get that three to four times a day. And then fill in the rest however you'd like as a first step. And that alone could be a game changer for your body weight, your mental acuity, your cravings and how you can curb them. And that also plays into helping contribute to better muscle tone and muscle mass, which then raises metabolism. It's where people should start. The second place to then add on as a layer to that is put one to three servings of fruits and vegetables or one to three different types of fruits and vegetables with each of those protein servings at three to four meals a day. And if you can get to that second layer and you do that consistently, the compounding interest of that on your health, fitness, your body weight, your body composition is tremendous. It's not going to change you in like two weeks to lose 10 pounds. But if you do it consistently for a long period of time, it will feel so easy and so natural. And you will be like astounded at like, holy smokes, I'm just a different body. I have a new set point. You'll have all these things you'll want to say about it, but People will look at you and be like, you're pretty uncommon. You must do something crazy. And you're like, no, 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 I just eat protein and fruits and veggies at every meal. And then I have the treats on the side and whatever else I'm kind of craving. This has been something that I've learned from you and has been invaluable to me as it relates to meal prep. And I know a lot of times people are trying to create these sophisticated meals where they like blend things together. And I know you've been a big proponent of just eat ingredients. Yeah. And when you think about it that way and you think, okay, protein, fat, carb. If you could elaborate on that, because this has been a game changer for me. Yeah. Essentially, you've got four food groups <laughs> that I think need to be on a plate. There needs to be protein. There needs to be fruit and veggie. There needs to be a carb source and there needs to be a fat source. And I say need, really, you need the protein, you need the fruits and veggies. Carbs and fat are just add-ons as you'd like. When we compose meals we're starting to change this narrative, but people are like, I need recipes. I need to go and build this complex thing. There needs to be all these different flavors. It needs to be like something that looks like a composed dish that would be photographed on Instagram or in Bon Appetit magazine. And I'm like, no, nah. what you need is you need a protein and 
just get a single ingredient protein. Chicken, fish, steak, Greek yogurt, tempeh, tofu, whatever you want, something lean protein. Then on your plate, put a fruit and a veggie, whatever you like. Some cucumbers, a couple carrots, an apple, half a banana, strawberries, you name it. I'm not going to tell you which is better or worse. Just pick one. For carbs, that could be your fruit, or that could be a potato, or it could be a piece of bread, or it could be some rice, whatever. But just make it rice, not curried rice with 15 different things and some sauce added to it. And No, it's just rice. And then a fat source. What's fat? Well, an avocado, olive oil, a little bit of butter, some almonds. Okay, these are the fat sources. So if you build a plate with five ingredients or less, protein, veggie, fruit, maybe a little carb, maybe a little fat, you've got a meal. It can fill up your whole plate and the total amount of nutrients there is tremendous. The total amount of calories is generally lower when you eat this way. So it's pull ingredients and put them on a plate. That's considered a meal rather than I'm going to go and make this recipe or I'm going to buy this composed dish that has 15 to 20 ingredients. By just simplifying the number of ingredients, you get away from foods and composed dishes that have a lot of added things that help make it more flavorful, but also add a lot of calories to the scenario. And so that to me is why I'm like a big proponent of hit these ingredients, make something fit the protein, make something hit the veggie and fruit section, make something hit the carb section, make something hit the fat section, do that three times a day. And you're going to be in like, a, again, this is going to be, you're in a new class of individual. Does that mean you never get to go out for dinner and have a very composed dish? No, you still do. But people talk about the 80-20 rule, like 80% of the time I'm doing a thing. Well, what does that actually mean in a week? Well, you have three meals a day, seven days a week. That's 21 meals. All right. What is 20% of that? That's four meals, three to four meals that you're actually going to go out and do something different. So if you can actually do that and limit the amount of eating out and doing something more elaborate to three or four meals and the rest follow that simple, basic, time-saving, health-conscious approach to eating, you're making massive, massive improvements. Actually, I can really appreciate just in your philosophy of encouraging something that's very sustainable. I will say that in my case, several months ago, I started tracking calories. I was using MyFitnessPal. I know this is not for everyone. I mean, I was even using a scale, but just like I was tracking metrics in the business, once I started tracking, I realized just how much I was underestimating the number of calories I was consuming in, in various meals. But to shift that a little bit, I know that there's people out there that either wear a Whoop or they've got their Peloton or whatever fitness tracker that they use that they will tell them, hey, you burned X number of calories. And I think sometimes people try to say, okay, well, I just burned 800 calories according to my fitness tracker and I'm going to eat XYZ meals to make up for that and that's going to help me maintain. Why is that a bad idea? That is a great question. And wearables and fitness devices are now ubiquitous out there. and People want to know what's going on with their health through all these markers. I'm wearing a Whoop device. I've got a step counter over on my watch. I track metrics. And something that I got really caught up in when I first put the Whoop on years ago was like, oh, it tells me how many calories I'm burning every day. What does that mean? Oh, I burned a lot more calories today. Should I eat more? Should I? And I have definitely gotten 
very into metrics and looking at the numbers. And I love the fact that you went through a process of tracking your food, just like you track business metrics. And yeah, we like to like add the little caveat, like, hey, I know it's not for everybody, but I tracked and this is what was beneficial for me. What's curious about that to me is like, if you're a business coach or an entrepreneur, do you say like, I know tracking your business metrics isn't for everybody. So like some people don't have to do it. It's like, no, that's crazy. It's like, you're going to go out of business and just not know what's going on. Or, And same thing with our food. I think tracking your food, having a system to track that is imperative that everyone comes up with a method for that. And I do believe at some point it's going to require you to do the painful process of tracking it. I don't think anybody loves tracking their business metrics when they first have to start doing it. They're like, man, this is hard. Like, I don't even understand what I'm looking at. Like, none of this makes sense. Not all of it's good. Like, Jesus, this just is a painful process. It can be that way too when you're tracking your food, but it's incredibly enlightening. And it, in the modern food landscape of today, the amount that people are consuming that they're unaware of that they just have no concept of what's going in is astounding. It's like, for example, the other night I had family over my sister-in-law. I'm a pretty big coffee guy. I got an elaborate setup. I like take my coffee real seriously. So I was like, hey, can I make anybody an after dinner coffee drink? I've got all these decaf different options. I can make a latte and I've got the espresso bar. I got the whole thing. And she's like, oh, a latte sounds good. And then she was like, ah, oh, no, no, I'm actually trying to cut out some carbs. So I, I'll just go with a regular coffee. I'll just put some cream in it. And I was like, okay, so... I was going to make her a latte that was probably like about a cup of whole milk, which is this much energy, this many calories, this many carbs. She went the other route. I watch her pour in her cream. And as she's just kind of pouring in cream and then she's like, oh, I'm going to pour some more cream in. I'm like, we actually just poured in about 220 calories worth of cream. And this latte was going to be, because of the way I make it, it's probably going to be 100 calories tops. And there's just no concept of that. So that's pervasive in so many things. And then when you get into like processed packaged foods, someone's like, I'm eating healthy because I'm having a bowl of oatmeal with berries and some nuts on it and this, and it's an 800 calorie bomb. And they don't even realize it because they were like just trying to go with the clean foods, but they're not measuring it. They're over scooping on the oatmeal. They're adding in a sweetener, like some maple syrup because it's natural. And then next thing you know, they're just consumed a ton of energy. So sorry to take a quick tangent there, but back to the wearables, people are wanting to get more aware of what's happening. And unfortunately, all these wearables throw in this calorie tracking data point. And if you go and wear five different calorie trackers, none of them will match up. My Whoop says one thing, this Amazon watch says another thing. And guess what? None of them are as accurate as looking at how many calories you're consuming and what's happening to your body weight, right? Because if you're consuming 3,000 calories a day or 2,000 calories a day, and your body weight is stable over a period of at least two, probably three weeks, then guess what? You're averaging burning that many calories a day. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. Now, if your whoop tells you on one day you burn 2,500 calories, you're like, oh, I should go have a little extra something. Or another day it says, I didn't burn as much, and you're trying to chase this daily thing. It is one, misguided information, and two, a moving target that doesn't develop routine and consistency in your life. I want you to do the same inputs every day because that's how we are in this 
modern world, we're cyclical, routine creatures. We put the same inputs in every day at the end of the month, evaluate what's changed with my body. Oh, I gain weight. Okay, we need to move that one input number a little bit. So they can serve a lot of other purposes. I think fitness trackers are really useful in helping people learn and gain better insight into how they sleep, how they recover their stress, which is indicated through HRV numbers that people get through their wearables. Many wearables track people's daily activity through steps. I think that is a powerful tool. And just in-house amongst my staff, the two people that I work with, they actually, they just hear me talking about it so much. They put on pedometers and now they have so much more insight into what they're doing and how much they're moving. And one is getting more steps every day because they just have a way to see, like I've been sitting a lot. I haven't moved at all today. So those are kind of the areas that wearables are really valuable. The value of them and the insights that they'll provide in the years to come will probably get better. But calorie tracking at this point, I just think is a bad place to go. And you're much better off spending the time like you did actually looking at how much you're consuming. Don't worry about how much you're expending. Focus on getting really aware of how much you're consuming and then your body weight and how your body is changing, that will tell you whether you're eating too much or not eating enough. We've kind of been navigating this throughout this conversation because I think a lot of your philosophies help to really strike this balance between striving for improvement, but also to put it one way, I guess, cultivating self-acceptance. Because I've seen sometimes people go down this road, they start going down the health and fitness journey, start tracking things, and then they either start to struggle with self-image or then they start to either binge eat and a cheat meal becomes a cheat day, becomes a whole busted routine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had some content pieces that have gotten a lot of shares and a lot of likes, which is just a sign that it resonates with people. Fitness people who are super ripped and jacked and they have bodies that people look at and they're like, wow, I want to have that body. A lot of those fitness people wake up and look at themselves in the mirror and they're not happy with what they see. They're not satisfied with what they see, that the body of your dreams, if I could just achieve that body, all of my fears, shame, negative self-image that I have today would be gone. And unfortunately, it's not really true. It's not always true. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue a better version of yourself. And I'm not saying that being leaner is a better version of everybody. I'm not trying to equate like well, go get better by losing body fat. What I'm saying is engage in practices that could and will likely promote a leaner body composition or like a healthier weight for you because the act of doing those things will improve the quality of each day of your life in the way that we talked about the water pipeline. By eating more protein, by getting in more steps each day by focusing on going to the gym to build muscle, by doing those things, you will feel better. You will be more productive. You will love your family and your friends more deeply. You will receive love more openly. All of those things will come out of the practices of doing that. Looking good or looking different or changing your image will be a byproduct of that. And that's what I have fallen in love with since I was a young athlete, young trainee, is 
that process. And even as my body has changed many times throughout the years, I have loved the way I look when I've been all shapes and sizes. I've hated the way I look when I've been all shapes and sizes. But when I get my protein, when I eat foods that feel good to me, when I get good sleep, when I'm engaged in the process, I always feel better than if I wasn't doing those things. And how do we change that mindset for people? It's super complex because diet culture, marketing, and the images that we see out there still have a heavy bias towards, let's get you to look a certain way. That will fix all your feelings. That will fix all of your problems. It's truly the things that you do, the sustainable habits and repeated behaviors that lead towards those changes in your body. It's performing them that will make you feel the way that you're hoping the body itself will make you feel. As we wrap this up, for anybody who's listening to this that hears this and says, well, that sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot of a lot of work to be focusing on my health, my nutrition, training. And I don't know, I don't even know what I would say to that because for anybody who travels, like my wife and I were just in an airport and I was telling her, I'm like, man, it is way easier to not be intentional than it is to be intentional because you go through an airport and you're like, of course, you know, where are the healthy food options, right? And it's like, you yeah. try to find, let me just find some nuts and like a healthy protein or just some fruit or something like that. And there's an abundance of everything else. But what I have found, just this is just my experience, is that yes, it does require perhaps more energy to be intentional, but you get so much more out of your hours as a result of doing so. Like your output increases, you have more energy, you're more effective. Whereas when you compromise and let's say you eat some junk food or you don't get as many hours of sleep as perhaps you should, you're almost sacrificing tomorrow's progress for today. Yeah, absolutely. It is more effort to be intentional these days. I don't want to sugarcoat it and be like, you can just mindlessly go through life and reap all the benefits and the rewards. You need to bring some intention to it. But just like the example of learning how to track your business analytics and metrics, you want to be intentional about that up front. And it's a lot of work because it's like, man, I'm learning a new language. If people would start to put health and fitness in the category of, I need to learn the language of health and fitness, then each investment that you make should stick with you and improve the rest of your life. Each amount of work that you put into building some awareness around one aspect of your health and fitness, we want that to stay with you for a long time so that it compounds and you can be at a place two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now where many of these things become second nature. Does it mean that you can just go on autopilot with it? No, like I still have to like have quarterly audits of what's happening with our business. We need to go back to our forecasting sheets and be like, hey, what are the actual numbers say? Periodically, we have to dive back into the painful, painstaking, very hyper-attuned and aware process of looking at the information. But now for the most part, those systems are in play and they're just there. And I'm not having to like learn the skill over again. The biggest frustrations I have in business which I think are the same that people have in health and fitness is when you come up against the same problem and you're like, I don't know what I'm solving for. I don't know how to solve this. I didn't put the time into it. And that's every six to 12 months. It's January 1st. You're like, okay, I got to get in shape because I got out of shape. 
that tugs at your soul. It's painful. It's a painful thing to come face to face with year after year where you're like, man, I'm just, I'm at the same stuck place and I don't have any more information or knowledge to help me in this process. And that's why one of the missions with functional bodybuilding, one of the taglines or one of the things that I talk about is I want to create thinking athletes. I want people to think enough to know why they're doing what they're doing. When we bring on a coaching client, somebody who's like, I want to do functional bodybuilding and I want a coach to teach me. Give me the one-on-one, the special treatment. When I talk about it with my coaches, I say, hey, in six months, in 12 months, could you teach somebody to be part of the top 1% of health and fitness people? Can we teach them the skills and the tools that they need? What can you commit to to learn over the next six to 12 months and put that in your toolbox of health and fitness? And now you've got that. And then next year, maybe you add another thing to that and you add another thing to that. And in five to 10 years, yeah, you'll have to do an audit on yourself periodically, but you're going to be so much further along than so many other people who are arriving at January 1 wondering, what do I do this time? Oh, look at this sexy marketing campaign. I'm going to fall into that trap of buying what they're selling. They're going to tell me that by January 30th, I'm going to be a new me. And you know deep down that that's not real. That's not true. And Marcus, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think it's completely in line with what I just discussed. It is something that is a game changer. It fundamentally changes your approach and ongoing approach for the long haul. And with functional bodybuilding, what I believe I offered to the CrossFit community, I really believe we changed the game where we spoke to an audience that felt like this is the only way to do it. And we took that narrow margin and we expanded and say, actually, you can put this in. You can do these other things. You can add in elements of training that you used to think were not acceptable. But now by adding them in, you're like, well, I see a different path forward. In the years that followed my initial startup of this company, I watched the competitors in my former sport, CrossFit, doing movements and exercises and training principles alongside their competitive fitness plans that looked like what I was doing. And I was like, it's getting there. And I had a coach that I deeply respect. He's one of the best coaches in the entire CrossFit competitive world, one of the brightest people. And he said to me, he's like, I think you really made it okay for people to do rehabilitative training and bodybuilding alongside CrossFit as a way to help them be better and sustain and avoid injuries for a long time. That was an example of, I think, a game-changing mentality in that training world. And I hope to continue to do that for different audiences and different people around all aspects of health and fitness, from nutrition to training methods to you name it. I want to give a huge thank you to Marcus Philly for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. 
Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Marcus Philly, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh,